Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron, and with me as always is Michael. I'm Michael. Wow. Once the Lego racers went, mm -hmm. and then <laughs> Stuart Hall said something about culture. Mm-hmm. All these things occurred in the past. One time there was a Dawson's Creek. I don't want to wait. These things occurred in the past. One time a man died while talking about a sled. All these things occurred before this very moment, much like the classics. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, that's uh that's the tune for Footloose. I can't I can't rip that off. That's that's it. That should be the theme song for the summer classics should have been the Footloose. Yeah, I just had to go in with the journey. Good foot. Uh, the uh, <laughs> when are we going doing? to get the trailer that uses a somber cover of Footloose? Everybody cut Footloose. Everybody cut. Well, that already kind of happened. I'm making a uh, light allusion here to uh, Yacht Rock, mm. <laughs> the program from the early 2000s in which uh, many. Comedic actors of the of the era uh, portrayed themselves as yacht rock creators, such as Kenny Loggins and the Doobie Brothers, and uh, some other people, James Ingram, the like. And there's an episode of Yacht Rock in which Kevin Bacon and a music producer have convinced Jimmy Buffett to kidnap Kenny Loggins in order to make him "quote unquote" lose the smooth and create a theme song for. This uh, this film now, of course, uh, they'd worked together on Caddyshack previously, uh -huh. um, but uh, he's chained in oh what uh, Parrot Town, whatever the hell Jimmy Buffett's got going on. He's he's chained there, and he tells the 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 doobie, the lead doobie. He says, "Cut foot loose, cut foot loose," <laughs> and that is the origin story of Footloose. I see. Uh, and the name of the song, of course, was originally Boy Who Dances Away Oppression. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about another classic, oh. a different classic. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, I you just thought we were talking about Footloose? All of these versions of Footloose for nothing? Oh, no. Well, let me tell you this. Hey, let's talk about Footloose for a second. I'll keep going. I love it. So <laughs> one day, in one single day, a uh, fr friend of mine, mm -hmm. my brave wife, several, several, some people, we watched. Footloose original, Footloose remake, and our Footloose remake—the like sweeted version mm -hmm. of Footloose, mm -hmm. where in, where individual teams did every single scene, uh, which I strongly encourage people check out um, because it's a smart thing. I did it, so that was like nine hours in one day of Footloose, and I don't regret it. I would do it again. It's fun. <laughs> the Footloose remake's good. Did you see it? No, I didn't. It's good. Speaking of classics, yeah. it's a modern classic. Really? It's just it's mm -hmm. a one for one remake. Not a yeah. lot of complication. Okay. 
um, but they do uh, cut Footloose. Okay. That's and they dance away oppression. Neat. Yeah. John Lithgow, huh? Yeah. He's pretty cool. Game cultures, huh? Game cultures. It's the book we're talking about today after a solid five. We're talking about other stuff. We, you know, we'd like to, we'd like to ease into it. Uh, we like to ease into those uh, five-star <laughs> run times. Yes. Uh, today, so we, we've done the Summer Classics. What have we done so far in the Summer Classics, Michael? Um, I What was our first uh, hit, actually, in the Summer Classics? What was that? Gary Allen Fine's Shared Fantasy. That wasn't the first one, was it? Yeah, it was. Of the Summer of Classics. Okay. It was. Okay. All right. Well, Gary Allen. It's not the first book we did because this is episode 50. Nah, no, it we've is done other 50. books. He's a pro. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Gary Allen finds uh, uh, Shared Fantasy, uh, Stuart Hall's Cultural Studies 1983, and now John Dovey and Helen W. Kennedy's Game Cultures, which has a subtitle, Computer Games is New Media. Yep. That's it. It's got a weird little cover on it, I would say. <laughs> Not to judge a book by its cover, but it's got, you know, like a press imprint looking cover. There's some big bars and whatnot. It looks like it came out in the year it did, which is yeah. 2006, mm-hmm. right? And then it's like a mural of some sort. I don't know what that could be. Uh, does it's it say like in, the, in the cover? Is there? Is it like credited or did... Because the, the mural oh. happens to say quite specifically game cultures. Mm-hmm. Charlotte Combe is credited with the cover illustration. Okay. It's got some gamers on it. You can actually open it. I think you read a digital version, so you don't get the 3D effect of opening up the thing to see that it stretches onto the back. Oh. Let's run to but the uh, very much, you know, this is it's published by McGraw-Hill um, it, through their Open University Press line. So it's it's textbook. I mean, quite literally, it is pitched as a textbook. Mm-hmm. It is written as a textbook, although it, I think it does straddle a weird line between monograph and textbook in yeah. a way that makes for an uncomfortable fit sometimes. Um, I think it would be hard to teach this and treat it like a textbook, and I think it would be hard to teach this and treat it like a monograph. Uh, um and uh, we'll get more into that, but but I think just in a general sense, comes out in two thousand six, um, and so is a pretty big early splash in game studies. Now you know, um, persuasive games, which is Bogos, you know, kind of big um, swing into the field. But uh, persuasive games comes out, I think, in yeah two thousand seven, right? So I, I think a lot of people look to that book as like a solidification or a. a formalization of the field you know but by the time that persuasive games is out game studies exists right you know in, in a broad and in, in, in general sense i think basically the time period between um half real which is 2005 so i would say 2005 to 2007 is like when a bunch of game studies books that are defining for what the field is mm-hmm. come out mm-hmm. um you know it's just a big explosive time for what's going on i don't i also think that like the first person, second person, third person volumes, those are what do 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 you know? Two thousand four, no. right? So like, if for, for, if first person is like a big salvo of like here's a big edited collection mm-hmm. of what the hell is going on when people talk about games, these other monographs start coming in after that, and also all these are MIT press books that I'm, I'm naming. Obviously, there's another trajectory and other trajectories, but I think that's a pretty significant one for. Um, I think if you poll random human beings who don't have any development in game studies, they're going to name off a lot of those books as, you know, kind of fundamentals 
whether they deserve to be or not. I'm, I'm not here to to uh, make that call. But uh, had you heard of Game Cultures before, Michael? This, this book that we read for our big episode 5.0. You know, I don't think I have. Uh, I was trying to think through that as I was reading it, because as I was reading it, there were multiple points where I was thinking like, wow, it would have been really great if anyone in the world had told me that this book existed, say, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just because oh. <laughs> uh, just because it uh, uh, makes some connections between like the study of performance and the study of video games in ways that I was quite literally struggling to do at that time in graduate school. But like no one around me had any sort of uh, uh, backing in the field. And I was like sort of trying to uh, figure it all out on my own. You love to do that, though. You love to figure things out. You're for, uh, first principles, Michael. They call you. I, I suppose that is true. I am. I am first principles, Michael. Um, so maybe this all, all just would have would have you know hindered me. Um, but no, I think it, it actually it's very interesting. Actually, the run up that you gave to this because yeah, by the time that I was there, uh, like trying to meld my interests together in grad school, in let's say yeah, it would have been like 2012 or so. Uh, the definitely like the the temperature had changed post Bogost. Like Bogost was the moment uh, that I remember feeling like I don't know some dude with like a, a tweed sports coat came in to the, like the department lounge and was like, "Did you hear the news? Game studies is a real field now." <laughs> and then everyone was like talking about Bogost for maybe the next five years after that. So it was like I was in the sea of Bogost, which you know like was useful but also like i'm trying to narrow in on this performance theory angle and everyone's just talking about talking about flaneurs and in procedural rhetoric and i don't know i want i want to talk about victor turner i want to talk about richard schechner and it turns out those guys show up here well there you go how about that yeah it turns a lot it turns out you should have googled ignorant historical michael how about that i should have just googled video games <laughs> uh uh victor turner you should video games victor turner his name was victor turner his name was victor turner <laughs> how about that for a throwback yeah uh that was still like a, a hip new movie when this uh when this book came out think about that <laughs> everyone would have gotten that <laughs> and that then joke. we could have that used would... Stuart hall's encoding decoding essay to discuss the film Wow. But yeah, so, th- you know, I, I don't think you're alone. I don't think that this book made um, just it was purely anecdotal based on, you know, being around the field for 10, year, ten years now. Good God. 10 years now. Mm-hmm. I started working on games when I went to graduate school, and that was 10 years mm-hmm. ago. So, yeah. Uh, I don't think this book made a, a really just, oof, uh, <laughs> I'm getting hit in the head there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't think this book made a huge splash in the United States, and as I don't say that in any way to minimize the impact of this book. I think this book is uh, very interesting. I think it's cool. I wish more people had read it, and I, too, wish that more people had told me about it, uh, particularly because there's some interesting, um, I don't know, stuff that was going on with my graduate education that actually shows up in this book. I think the first time I heard about this book was at DIGRA 2013, which is when DIGRA came to Atlanta, the only time since I have been in the South that Digra ever came to Atlanta. Um, and uh, I mean, I guess there's like a million places that Digra never goes. So I shouldn't say that in a complaining way. I'm, I'm glad it came one time. 
So I was in graduate school and I was writing a thesis on a lot of the kind of stuff that's going on here about non-human play, about what goes on when the human being in interacts with a game at kind of a decomposed level. Really reading that through Delanda um, and kind of non-human theory people uh, and very purposefully not reading it through the figure of the cyborg. Uh, and I was at dinner <laughs> Uh, with some game studies scholars, uh, many of whom were more senior. Uh, no, all of whom were more senior than I was at that time, being like in a master's program. And I was very lucky to be there. And I, you know, I was just having dinner, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's the kind of academic chat that you have. I was like explaining this and someone very um, probably now as an actual like adult, uh, with thoughts and feelings and and a full composition of being able to look back and understand what happened. They were probably saying it directly to me, mm -hmm. but it, at the time it felt like they were being a huge asshole to me by, because I was like explaining what I was reading and what I was doing and blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, Helen Kennedy already did all that. <laughs> and I was like, well, I mean, I've, you know, I've read some of the, you know, the stuff and I'd read like some, I think Seth Giddings had also written around some of this stuff before that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He cited uh, and here I was on that like, point. Yeah, yeah, and it was really weird reading this. I was like, oh, I actually think I've read this this early Seth Giddings work um, that I don't think that I'd remembered when we read that book. But so anyway, we're like, to, you know, talking, and they were like, no, Helen Kennedy already did that. And and then so then I learned about this book. <laughs> and then I realized, I, you know, I probably very tactically read the one chapter on cyborgs and said, mm -hmm. ah, Helen Kennedy didn't do that. Shoo! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then went on with my life. But I think probably uh, my work would have been substantially better if I had engaged with this book a little bit more seriously. Um, I also think probably I read the opening page of this. And uh, there's a thing that annoys me in game studies. And it annoyed me 15,000% more back then. And I think it probably shut my brain off for actually engaging with this book, which has nothing to do with the book and everything to do with me. And I will, in fact, note that again, as I have to note every time it comes up in a book we read. So that's all to say, I, but this person was um, not from the U.S. They were not a U.S. scholar. You know, when you, when you, Tom Apperley has a pretty famous blog post that's like, hey, uh, the game studies debates that you're familiar with are maybe not the best entryway into it. It's kind of a, a blog post from a few years back that is just when people wrote blogs mm -hmm. that, that's just like, hey, um, ludology versus narratology like dominates much of the discussion, the entryway discussion for games internationally. Um, and I can say that in the U.S., anytime you bring up games anywhere, someone will say, oh, like ludology versus narratology still in the mm -hmm. year 2022. That still happens regularly. Um, I had a conversation recently with a non-game studies scholar who was like, oh, yeah, I know about narratology versus ludology. Mm -hmm. Like it, it has uh, it, it broke quarantine and it's everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, uh, hard to hard to deal with. Um, Kids on TikTok are recording videos about it. Uh, it's no, they are. It's number two only to uh, oh, like game theory, you know, as the mm -hmm. as the thing, uh, like the economic game right. theory stuff. And everyone walking around saying that if you're a game studies scholar, your colleagues telling people you do game theory. Yeah, which uh, I appreciate when when colleagues mention your work. That's always nice, but also it's not. I don't think any of us could do game theory. <laughs> Very few of us do. Um. But that's all to say, uh, you know, Tom in that piece basically points to this book and some stuff, uh, uh, the Jeff King, Tanya Kurzawinska books as like, 
hey, here is a form of game studies that was contemporary um, with the ludology, narratology debates that happened in the U.S. and Europe, um, with the procedural rhetoric stuff that eventually comes to really um, connect up some disciplines, you know, connect game studies to disciplines like English, for example, um, uh, literature, the study of literature. Uh, there's this whole other trajectory, you know, Tom, Tom said, um, and game cultures is being a part of that. And I think that that piece, uh, which got shared around and still gets shared around quite a bit, it shows up in our discord every now and again, I think it had a pretty outsized impact in making sure that more people knew about this book. Uh, so that, that was all to say that I think that people in the U.S. talking about this book, you know, I don't think. I think the number of times I've heard it come up as like, you know, the an emblematic classic text in games, um, like, you know, on the slideshow when people begin their conference presentation and they're like, I'm in conversation with XYZ work, you know, and they got to cite their big name theorists or whatever. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen this book show up there. Or if I have, it's been once or twice out of hundreds of presentations I've seen about games. So when we talk about the summer of classics, uh, a, a thing that is important about that is like some of these are books that are classics and some of these are books that we want to be classics, right? Like we want you to read Stuart Hall, Cultural <laughs> Studies, 1983. It deserves to be a game studies classic because it informs so much that game studies may be missed out on. Uh, this is a book that is weirdly enough, both things. It is both a truly a class fundamental text for a slice of the discipline but also one that a huge chunk of people just will never engage with mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason that, you know, so hopefully this episode will serve as a little bit of an introduction to that. And I strongly encourage that if you are in game studies, you probably didn't have this book on your shelf. Uh, if you're a new game study student, buy this book. I, I think there, we're going to talk about a lot of the things in, in it here, but ultimately at the end of the day, I think you can do way, 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 way. Oh, way, 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 way worse uh, to find a backing text, right? Kind of theoretical justification or a theoretical starting point than game cultures, computer games as new media. So I, I've been talking for a long time and I apologize for <laughs> it, but everyone loves to hear an anecdote about Digra 2013, mm -hmm. don't they? Yeah. I mean, I never went, so the anecdotes are all I have. That's the last one I went to. Oh, damn. Mm -hmm. You got to come to me if you want me to go to Digra. <laughs> what, uh, did we learn anything about uh, these people? Uh, John W. and Helen W. Mm -hmm. Kennedy are our authors. It's a dual authored volume, uh, which I thought was odd, but I think I don't think you've said this on the recording, but we were talking about this. No, maybe, you, yeah, no, we were talking about this just before. Uh, you said that this was... Uh, sort of uh, intended to float as kind of a textbook. Uh, oh, yeah. Which, yeah, definitely. Yeah, which uh, makes the dual authorship make a little more sense. You generally have a bigger writing team on those. Um, so Duffy uh, is currently a professor of screen media in the Department of Creative Industries at the University of West England, Bristol. Uh, I don't know precisely where he was when he would have uh, been writing this, but that's where he is now. Uh, and his interests uh, seem to come out, well, both both of these people, um, their interests come out of film. Uh, they, they seem to start out as kind of like film cultural studies people, um, and then moving into new media, digital media. Uh, 
based on what I was reading uh, uh, around his profile on like the department website, uh, he is currently kind of moving into like VR augmented reality research. Uh, Helen W. Kennedy, meanwhile, she is a professor of creative and cultural industries at the University of Nottingham. Uh, again, comes out of kind of an experimental film uh, background, uh, or like, I think maybe she's done or worked on some experimental films, but also has like studied them. Uh, and her profile says that she is uh, uh, most mostly interested now in kind of like datification. I don't know. Big thoughts here. I mean, I know you said it helps you get performance, but uh, are we ready just to dive in or you got a big, big idea? Michael's big idea? Uh, my big idea for this book, uh, just because kind of a general descriptor, not even like a judgment, like good or bad. It's just something sort of notable. Uh, it's a pretty thin book. Uh, I don't mean that in terms of ideas. I just mean like it's about 150 pages long, um, which is just not very long. Uh, we get a lot of information, but it's very sort of uh, scoped out. Uh, and there are points where this thing reads almost more like uh, a journalistic coverage of mm -hmm. what game development looked like circa 2005, 2006, uh, which is helpful and interesting. It's just it's interesting uh, compared to stuff that we tend to read for this show. Uh, which might be some sort of theoretical deep dive or kind of, uh, you know, extended close readings. Um, there are a couple of moments of close reading here, uh, but they often very much belong to other authors who are being, like, in researchers who are being cited, right? Like, uh, uh, multiple authors uh, will be cited, uh, and then there will be some sort of, like, meta claim made about, like, the ways that they're reading, say, uh, Tomb Raider or something, right? Here, Here's multiple people talking about Tomb Raider. Mm -hmm. Here is a way of uh, making sense of, like, how they're all the same, but also what are the differences between them and so on and so forth. Um so it's just, it's an interesting book in that regard, right? That it uh, gives you a lot of kind of factual information to think over, um, while also, I mean, we'll get to this, like the other thing that is super interesting about this book is just the uh, the way that it approaches the problem of the, the very existence of video games uh, is pretty mm -hmm. distinct from every other thing that we have read for this show and that uh, I've personally read um, about this this precise problem, right? This problem that emerges that in some ways uh, incites, right, the, the ludology and narratology di distinction uh, is, oh, we have these things called video games. How do you study them? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's, all, that's why I was talking about the kind of textbookiness, right? And, I mean, it is explicitly coming out of a textbook publisher, it, and it looks like a textbook. I mean, the physical mm -hmm. copy is you know, that weird kind of square shape with big margins, you yeah. can write stuff in it. Uh, you know, it, it's got the tech, it's got a glossary at the end, mm -hmm. you know, which is, um, I, again, more of now a historical, like, th this is what these words meant at this time more than it is like a trans historical thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the, uh, but, but yeah, I think ultimately if there is a flaw in the book, and, and I don't, I don't mean this in a damning way at all, but I do think it's like a problem that the book, uh, by its very nature, can't can't resolve, um, and you just kind of have to be okay with it. Is that on one hand they seem like they very much want to do their own in theorizing of games in this in this book, but it has to happen through the rhetorical framework of the textbook, which is it produces what you were just talking about, which is like here's what blank says, here's what blank says, here's what blank says, here's what blank says, 
and then therefore this is how we understand the field of whatever mm-hmm. you know what i mean um you know that we're we're about to read that about like the notion of the text when it comes to a game right mm-hmm. but then there's this additional step that in all of that what i just said there that's what a textbook would do right it would tell you here's the the field of what's going on here's some things about it and then here's some reflective questions for you to kind of consider um you know what are these different camps how do they interact with one another blah 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 but then uh, w and kennedy do this one additional step right which is like and here's our own theorization of that mm-hmm. um and it's always supplementary. It, it, it never begins from the beginning, right? We we basically read through a textbook chapter, and then we get, like, their little theory bumper at the end. Um, and, you know, you can imagine a different world in which this is written as a more traditional monograph where we begin with the theory part, mm-hmm. and we begin with their ideas, and then we get the kind of lit review thing. But this mostly reads like, um, you know, half of the time you're reading or two-thirds of the time you're reading that kind of a lit review uh, that's parsing the field of game studies, which is like a very helpful thing for a textbook to do. And then you get their kind of theory additions here. Um, and because they get so little time to develop, I don't think they're very convincing. I think they're very evocative and very interesting. Mm-hmm. But I have a hard time kind of saying, all right, I guess that's true, because there's not a lot of proof to them. Um, because they, they're so heavily uh, pushed off by the other stuff. Um, so chapter one? Yeah, I think so. I think that's that's where where we're going to go. Studying computer games. This chapter feels like a, a big overview chapter. Um, it kind of previews a lot of things that are going to come up later. Uh, you know, sort of like opening shot, opening salvo. Uh, computer games represent a new stage in the mediation of everyday life. Right. It is like it's 2006, baby. It is uh, the age of new media. It's all happening. Yeah, it, you know, this the the whole opening chapter here is like g- here are games. Games cannot be studied in the way that you study other media. Mm-hmm. That's impossible. Uh so then therefore how do we get there? And then we get this kind of very um you know, citational overview, right? And it it's pretty fascinating to me the the names that we're going to see again mm-hmm. in game studies and the games that kind of fall out you know what what are the texts what's the winnowing that happens with these right so like mark poster shows up and mark poster gets cited in games occasionally still we get uh someone named klein talking about games in terms of uh, kind of a McLuhanist um idea marshall McLuhan style stuff we get Stuart Molthrop, who mm-hmm. is huge in this book, mm-hmm. and we don't really hear all that much about in game studies anymore gonzalo frosca mm-hmm. ted friedman espen arseth um gilbert a gilbert who i'm not super familiar with but i don't think also yeah that's just about modeling that's not about games specifically uh lev manovich Mm -hmm. henry jenkins tomas but i think that's just on cyborgs generally uh gadamer and that's it like these people the reason i'm reading all those names off they all get big block quotes Mm -hmm. as like telling us what what are we doing here in game studies uh, in a general sense. And I think it's interesting that, you know, Arseth stuck around. Ted Friedman, not so much. Mm-hmm. People don't cite Ted as much as they used to. Uh, I was telling uh, you this, uh, I think, last night on Discord. But uh, uh, it's very funny to see that Ted Friedman is like, 
the name for dealing with some of these issues in early game studies because I, I took a bunch of classes with Ted. <laughs> Ted was in my graduate program, or he was a faculty member in my graduate program, and I took a game studies class with Ted, um, although we didn't read any of this earlier stuff, which is funny. Uh, we read a lot of very contemporary, very new books uh, in game studies. But, uh, yeah, anyway, it's just uh, it was a, a funny thing to be like, oh, there he is. There's Ted. There's Ted. Everyone likes it. Ted's great. Um, I don't know. So, what? I mean, we could uh, go beat by beat, but I don't think we have to do that here. Michael, what sticks out to you as uh, the way that Dovey and Kennedy tell us we need to read games? Um, well... We don't quite get there until I would say chapter three, uh, because what these first two chapters are, so one, studying computer games, and then two, play technology and culture, uh, are kind of setting groundwork uh, for mm -hmm. what they're going to start doing in chapter three. Um, chapter one, then, uh, is basically diving into questions of like, uh, you know, starting with the question of how do we study games, first of all, right? Like, what is what are the toolkits and things like that? We introduce certain key themes that are going to be running through this. Uh, you already mentioned Stuart Moulthrop is huge in this book, and he is, uh, particularly his idea of configuration, uh, which is uh, a sort of response to, you know, how do you how do you read a text, uh, in this case, the video game, that is potentially different every time it is played? Right. Like, what do you do with that? Uh, this is this is a problem for Espen Arseth in, in a different sense, uh, but it scales out to all computer games. So configuration, the act of the player kind of working through the game, influencing how the text turns out, becomes really important for Dovey and Kennedy uh, as a kind of... Uh, new way to think about uh, the... Uh, uh, reader experience i'm using reader there in its loosest possible sense because here it comes to mean both like uh, a reader in the traditional sense is the person who's making sense of the object uh but also the person who is interacting with the object that's the other kind of key point here is that uh, computer games are interactive new media are interactive in ways that uh older media were not what the heck does interactive even mean how do we approach these questions uh, and one of the answers that presents itself that we're going to hear about again kind of throughout these chapters is looking at cybernetics as a field. Uh, cybernetics uh, in particular as this way of thinking about feedback loops between here's a uh, machine that does something. Uh, there's a person who uses the machine who reacts to the machine's outputs and then gives the machine further inputs and the machine continues to do things and then the user continues to uh, react to those outputs by uh, changing their inputs, right? That kind of feedback loop of uh, technological use. So that shows up. Um, there's a question that is posed uh, about immersion and how tricky that can be. Uh, on the one hand, immersion seems to suggest that uh, we become passive in the face of a video game. Uh, but on the other hand, people are constantly saying that the thing that makes these uh, games distinctive is that they're interactive. So how do we resolve the the apparent contradiction between uh, passive immersion and like interactivity and uh, cybernetics feedback loops is one of the ways around that. Um, uh, we talk a bit about participatory cultures and how those are coming up. This is especially where Jenkins is kind of coming in. Uh, this is actually maybe, I think, one of the most impressive things about this book is that uh, 
they really hit the gang culture. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, there are things there are things that maybe don't show up here that could, and there are maybe things that show up here that uh, uh, disappear in the coming decades. Uh, but the fact that they're saying here in chapter one of uh, our book about video games, uh, we need to talk about participatory fan cultures because participatory fan cultures are integral to how the video game industry functions. Yeah, I mean, you know, but I think this is by virtue of being uh, kind of aimed as a textbook, or mm-hmm. maybe this is just like the the total complete thing they're doing, right? Because they they do say that this book is a cultural studies book, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's on the first page or the first actual text page of the thing. Although, uh, it, you know, it's always funny the way that that kind of stuff uh, trickles out, right? Because uh, we just read a cultural studies book, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this guy named Stuart Hall. Mm-hmm. Right, who was like running around and like uh, accelerating the field, cultural studies, blah blah blah. Uh, do you know how many times that Stuart Hall shows up in this book? Oh, I was keeping an eye out, and I think something like zero, zero times. Yeah, which is whatever, right? I mean, cultural studies is big. That's a big um, field, all kinds of stuff. But but Raymond Williams also only really shows up one time. So I, it, it's very funny that this is a book that um, it's a book that is doing cultural studies, undoubtedly, right? It's mm-hmm. looking at the circuit of culture. It's saying that you cannot abstract the text, you know, the, the end product from its development, from its encoding and decoding scenarios, right? Like the culture and the way that it receives the text matters just as much as the text itself, mm-hmm. right? All these kinds of things. But then like the people who prove that or or have done that work, right? And particularly the Marxist work that that did that, that is all gone, mm-hmm. right? Like that there there's no politics behind the method of analysis here. Um, you know, it's it, Marxism without Marx, uh it's uh, <laughs> a cultural studies without uh the studies part, right? Uh it's cultural studies it's only the culture. Right. Um there's something fascinating about that maneuver here that that I'm sure has something to do with the political economy of academia in the UK, in the early 2000s, uh, you know, right, where just after the, the invasion of Iraq, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I get it. I, I, I understand where there might be political maneuvers that are necessary to do the work without uh, aligning yourself with particular figures. But it did feel like a big gap to me mm-hmm. um, when that's just there. No, it's really interesting. So, like, that you say Raymond Williams comes up once, and he does. Uh, and the problem with Williams... Uh, that they point out is that he is essentially a humanist by which uh, they, they, the other way that they say he's a humanist explicitly, but the other way that they put this is that he's a social determinist. The question being like, hmm. what are games? What do they do? Uh, the Raymond Williams-ish answer here, right? The sort of humanist answer or the social determinist answer is going to be games are whatever people make of them, right? Like games right. are these things that kind of exist um, and then people can put them to whatever uses. In Hall, this gets talked about uh, again in the case of Williams. And it's one of the ways that Hall uh, critiques Williams through this kind of humanism of saying that like men make their own history, right? This idea that people can basically just like power through it. Uh, you know, the, the indomitable human spirit or whatever. That's a problem for Hall because, uh, you know, he, he understands social production in a fairly Althusserian way. Even though he has criticisms of Althusser, he thinks that Althusser is correct in understanding that uh, social reproduction 
is a process without a subject, right? It's kind of these institutions that uh, are constantly remaking themselves slash being remade uh, through kind of just the, the uh, uh, fluctuations of ideology and, and production. Uh, mm -hmm. So they make the same critique of Williams that Hall does, but instead of going to Althusser, they go to cybernetics. Cybernetics is how they uh, get around the question of like the like valorizing totally the human spirit and instead talking about the uh, give and take between the human uh, action and like the the material or the media objects like uh, uh, the way that those things like cause people to have thoughts or to have feelings or to uh, the way that those things structure agency is the, the other way to put that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, right. that, that I mean that's the the anti-humanist yes. principle, mm -hmm. right? That, that the structure produces the subject, right? Uh, and and it's not like, uh, you know, what uh, it's you know you, the mental image of Soviet realism, right? Where it's like big muscly dudes carrying lumber and hitting things with hammer, and that mm -hmm. like builds history, right? Yeah. Like the Althusserian method is the opposite of that, right? Like the the hammer makes the person, mm -hmm. um, uh, and the 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 big process that directs all that labor uh, has a much bigger um, capability to determine the trajectory of human history um, and what kind of person you are than you know the muscles you build or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, but yeah, that, that kind of is. A, they they work through some more citationally apparatus stuff, but that's basically what's happening in this first chapter, right? Yeah. That, uh, with an additional layer here of games are not the w anything else. You know, they mm -hmm. they are not games are not books, games are not movies, games are not blah blah blah. You know, any other thing. Mm -hmm. uh, games are their own thing, and you need to bring. Um, new tools to games and they cite Arseth to do that right uh they cite Arseth multiple times including the you know something we talked about in the episode the colonizing uh thing if you want to learn more about um Espen Arseth's cybertext you can go check out the episode that we did on that mm -hmm. um uh but um I don't know I do do you think because there was this big maneuver that had to happen at the beginning of game studies to be like game studies is its own field you can't just read it like you read other stuff mm-hmm do you, do you buy that in the year 2022? Uh, I buy W. and Kennedy's version of that. Um, okay. I don't, or I, I buy it more, I guess, right? The, mm -hmm. You can go listen to our RSF episode, because I'm sure I like had a lot to say on it there. Uh, but the whole thing about RSF, and in some ways, they're taking RSF as indicative of a, a broader or sort of like a... a yeah, yeah, broader position. Uh, yeah, of the right move to make. Even if they don't agree with everything he says, it's the correct move, uh, you know, the correct um, split to make within media study. Right, like that uh, we shouldn't just treat games as uh, the next the next type of novel or the next type of film or the next type of television show. Um, now, Arseth, like the, the thing that Arseth misses for Dovey and Kennedy, and I think this is interesting, right? This is where this book gets really interesting, is that uh, for Arseth and kind of the camp of ludologists that he is made to represent, uh, and this is this is and this is not even like their framing, right? This is the sort of thing that Arseth is saying in his book. Uh you know, the, the ludologists are going to make claims like, oh, it's about rule systems, right? Games, like the fundamental thing about games is that they are like programmatic rule systems that uh, human beings will execute and that we can now, like we now have machines called computers that can be programmed to execute these rule sets. And that's where video games come from. Um, and that's true. Uh, but what Dovey and Kennedy do uh, is say, 
Well, yes, but actually we can take one step further back and realize that uh, computers are things with a history and that they have a kind of, uh, you know, material-like productive process behind them. Uh, there are class interests vested in the development of computers and sort of like, you know, state interests. Uh, and when we say we need to develop sort of new ways to talk about video games, we don't just mean like we need to uh, focus in on the rule sets. We mean uh, we need to think about what does capitalism look like right now and how is that influencing uh, the media properties that we are producing. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not uh, uh, so much about like, uh, I think in many ways, right, the more like the literary study way of approaching uh, video games that Arseth is very much unhappy with, where you just take like, uh, traditional literary methods and apply them to the video game text and see what comes out. Uh, that that maneuver feels uh, beholden to like this idea of tradition or history, right? We're going to make the study of video games workable by saying like, actually, this is part of a tradition, a trajectory within history. Uh, here's how old some of this stuff is. Um, or here's how, you know, these old kind of ways of looking at things can still be useful here. Uh, and Dovey and Kennedy are saying like, well, yeah, sure, maybe. But like the the primary like distinctive thing about video games is how uh, well they condense the uh, relations of production in uh, global post-millennial capitalism. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, their they, their opening thing here, right? Uh, that I really like. It's on page two. The hyperbole of technoculture enthusiasts is usually resolutely ahistorical. Mm -hmm. I love that. I like <laughs> like the phrasing of that. It's just great. So yeah, I think that I think it's good. I I we're gonna we're gonna talk about cybernetics and cyborgs later on. Um, and they kind of lay the groundwork for some of that here, just telling you where they're going. I guess the other major thing that happens here, well, I, I you know. I got to say this. I, let, let me say this before I say the other major thing. I I, I don't think. I don't agree. I, I think that game studies overcorrected by saying that process matters more than uh, representation or the inherited modes of argumentation or uh, visuality mm -hmm. or whatever from other media. Um, you know, I, my book is out. Hey, by the way, I keep forgetting to mention it on this book. My book is out. It's called The World is Born from Zero. You can buy it. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive. It's academically expensive. <laughs> request it for your library yeah <laughs> uh a paperback will come out next year uh so if you if you uh if you look at it and go oh my god it's way too much money you're right you're correct right uh, don't buy it yet just wait uh or get it from the library but uh the i have a whole chapter here that's just about the in, in that book that is about the inherited modes of um visuality that come out of cinema and that uh, set the stage for gameplay in the last of us mm -hmm. it, to me it is impossible to understand how the last of us works without understanding you know as a text as like this kind of emotional resonance thing, whatever, uh, without understanding how it adapts and pulls from cinema and uses cinematic technique and uses very tried and true cinematic and prestige television technique. Um, and so I think weirdly enough, and you know, doing the, the analysis of the field to kind of write that chapter, there, there was an, I believe, I think, there was an overcorrection for process at this moment of the origination of game studies that made us as a field, and I count myself as a part of this because I've absolutely done the same thing for years. It's only through working through this book that I kind of 
flip back around the other way, but it has made us pretend that some things that are in fact inherited and directly borrowed are unique to games and are about process rather than about framing or about the things that we would say are traditional parts of quote unquote text, right? Um, and so I, I got to put my, I got to plant my flag a little bit here to say like, I just, I just don't know, like reading this whole book claims about process over representation or claims about simulation over representation or about action over visuality. It's a very similar argument to what Galloway makes in the gaming book, which is contemporary to this one too. Uh, I just don't know if I think that's true. Yeah. I, I think that the visual <laughs> image is a pretty, uh, you know. A violent thing. It works in particular effective and affective ways. I am. Oh God, this is going to totally derail us. Uh, I love it. I'm I so, love it. I'm so interested to hear you saying this because one of my notes here. I mean, I didn't actually write this as explicitly in the notes, but I I noted the same thing that you're talking about, which is this bit where they talk about a, a shift in the in, in between kind of visual regimes, right, from representation mm -hmm. to simulation. And I've encountered right. that claim a couple of times in books that we've read for this show and in other game studies uh, arguments that I've read. And something that I was thinking specifically when I got to this point, because it's been bothering me for a while, is uh, <clears throat> how game studies uh, will often make simulation a thing that is opposed to representation or mimesis when, uh, you know, I'm here tunneling in the cobwebbed cellar of, like, several thousand years of aesthetic history, and I can tell you, like, people were talking about simulations way back when, and they just considered them a part of representation, right? They didn't make a distinction, and game studies often does, and I'm interested in why that happens, but uh, uh, maybe that's a question for another day. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you mentioned this to me uh, a couple of days ago too, and I don't, I, I, I think that there was at some point, and we could probably track this down. It's probably happened in the books that we have read. I think there was a moment in game studies, or maybe in the allied disciplines of game studies, maybe computer science. I don't really know where simulate where the the. Um, uh, the 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 mic right the, mm -hmm. the military industrial complex yes. notion of simulation was naturalized as what simulation is right and that's uh, what i yeah i think that that's the case and i think what's important there is that uh simulation under this uh sort of paradigm gets put forth as a representation that's more trustworthy because it has like data backing or there's some sort of like a partial like programmatic process behind it uh, mm -hmm. And what is fascinating about this is that simulation as a distinct term arises in English specifically to describe things that are more deceitful than normal representations. <gasps> the, the, uh, right. Say, say, Satanulation. Yes. Simulation <laughs> is like a, a directed, active, like pretending. Right. right? Um, Got it. So... I don't know. Just it, I think it's interesting that uh, suddenly we talk about simulations as sort of like an improved version of representation when, in fact, that very idea of simulation comes out of a, a way of saying it's it's actually worse, maybe. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that's also the thing, too. Uh, and that's a good and notable thing to, to talk about here, because I the, implicitly that argument gets made everywhere. And I think implicitly that argument is being made here, or at least Arseth is being read to say that argument, right? Like simulation is better because of action. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if, if Dovey and Kennedy think that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I want to hold, I want to hold out for them here. And I think basically within this, certainly compared to Arseth, right? Uh, they're better on aesthetics than, than Arseth is because as we'll see at the end of, and I say better in the sense of, I think they take it more seriously. Um, because, uh, you know, 
it's kind of what I was talking about when we were reading Cybertext that like that has a whole chapter on genre mm-hmm. about the detective thing, and yet it doesn't really understand genre or it, it is uh, purposefully bracket. I Arseth probably understands genre, but it purposely brackets off a bunch of aesthetic qualifiers and qualities of genre in order to argue that like the detective genre is one type of interactive thing mm-hmm. as opposed to like this whole big cluster of Columbo looking ass dudes, right? Right. Uh, and like the ways that they engage in gender politics and all those kinds of things, right? It, it brackets that off because that's not part of the the kind of games that Arthas is interested in defending or talking about or highlighting. Um, I do think it's interesting that later on in this book that that Dovey and Kennedy do want to talk about that, right? Mm-hmm. But the the reason they care about aesthetics is that aesthetics are, create this kind of packet that through which you interact with the world. And it is the embodying packet. They care a lot about the avatar toward the end of this book. And it's that embodying avatar packet kind of thing that ultimately has more aesthetic weight than like anything else in the game, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But so I, I, I said all that before, and I don't want to say that Dovey and Kennedy get this exactly wrong because I don't think they do. I think they're actually quite a bit better on those questions than some of the contemporary work that we've read or, the, or in the work that they're citing. However, I think that this is still part of an overcorrection away from aesthetics um, and away from modes of visuality and ways of thinking visuality that I just think is... Um, I don't know. It's put us in a weird space in game studies where I think we're missing some pieces occasionally. And that's not everybody. I think there, there are people who are doing this the way that I would prefer to do it. <laughs> <laughs> because this is my podcast and I get to like make de- declarations about what the right way to do game studies is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, you know, maybe, maybe this is also me, uh, a knee-jerk reaction to being like solely in the sights of this first chapter and not liking <laughs> it. Um, uh, so a couple things. So sorry, I, I said all that stuff because I was on the way to two things. So a notable thing, this is a quote from page six. This is them. Uh, In order to study a computer game, we cannot have a recourse, have recourse solely to its textual characteristics. We have to pay particular attention to the moment of its enactment as it is played. The text, if we were to use that term at all, becomes the complex interaction between player and game or what is described as gameplay. This is kind of attending to what I just talked about, but... That's the thing to remember about this whole book. The, the thing you have to analyze, the thing that we need new tools in 2006 to analyze is gameplay, right? What happens when you play a game? Mm-hmm. And you've, you've said this, I've said this, but I think it's a good quotation to like kind of solidify it. This is their claim. Now, I don't know if this is true. I, I, you know, I, there's all kinds of contextualizing stuff that happens around gameplay. feels very strange to, to highlight it out, but that is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is on page nine is the first mention of Neuromancer, mm-hmm. of which there will be 400 across this book, <laughs> which is fascinating to me, right? Right? I'm a science fiction studies person, right? Like, it, it is fascinating to me that William Gibson and Neuromancer in particular completely controls the conversation in game studies for this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and some of the most complicated and weird parts of that, right, such as like the SimStem section of that book where... Uh, Case looks through Molly Millions' body and feels all the sensations of her body and all that kind of stuff, you know, it, which really complicates what does it mean to interact, play a game, blah, 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 any of that kind of stuff. None of that's in this book. It's all the uh, immersion stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, you know, the uh, the Texas catheter and all that right. kind of stuff of like having to, to, to uh, uh, deal with the body while you're locked into the machine. Mm-hmm. So that's fascinating to me, and I'll probably bring it up several more times because truly, Neuromancer is like a, a, a keystone in in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we get Haraway. We get our first mention of Haraway and Cybernetics. That'll get its own chapter. The thing that I wanted to work to, you know, just kind of talking through the stuff and the thing that's going to matter a lot because at the very beginning of this, I said, you know, there's this little bumper at the end of every chapter that's like, hey, you remember our theory about how this works? This is this is what it is. And this is how the chapter interacts with that. Technicity mm-hmm. is their turn that they're developing out of Tomas. This person, Tomas? I think so. I did not put that specific thing in my notes. Uh, I think so. But uh, technicity is basically subjectivity as developed out of technology. Mm-hmm. Right. It is a, a way of thinking about how certain identities are predicated on uh, a an implicit uh, technological capacity. Mm-hmm. So uh, computer game makers, computer game players, right? Mm-hmm. Like the way you experience the world is mediated or afforded by or in conversation with always mm-hmm. with the technology that you're in. And that's a unique form of subjectivity for them in 2006. Mm-hmm. I, I think now, I think that's just like what everyone is doing, right? And I would actually say that that was the case. I mean, Guattari is writing about this in the mid-80s, that this has already happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have lots of theorists and lots of philosophers who, as soon as, you know, the picture of the Earth, you know, is released, um, you know, the <laughs> satellite images of the Earth, they're like, all right. I mean, that's Heidegger, right? Yeah. Like, you go all the way back to that, and it's like, well, they have a picture of the Earth. Uh, we're all different now, <laughs> like, the way we think about the world. I don't know if I think the Heidegger is right, but I do think that the kind of maneuver that happens out of, say, the whole Earth catalog and the kind of philosophy work that is dealing with that, although not in the kind of boosterist mode that the whole Earth catalog is doing, um, I think all of that is making very similar arguments that, that that technological transformations in the world we live in is fundamentally producing a different kind of human being that uh, existed before. Mm-hmm. Maybe not ontologically, meaning that we're not a new species mm-hmm. or something like that, but our worldview, our way we interact with the world, our expectations, those things are, are pretty big. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, a uh, sort of key claim that comes here at the end of this chapter, because uh, it is kind of just, if you want to know what this book's deal is, here it is. Uh, quote, the main argument of these chapters is that to date, games have been produced by very particular kinds of people who have developed very particular cultures. We define these cultures in terms of, in terms of dominant and resistant technicities. Uh, so just to ex- uh, exfoliate that a little, uh, the technicities there, right, uh, can be read as, it, in a more general sense, as identities, right? The These uh, video games are produced by people who tend to have very particular life experiences and come from particular backgrounds, and unsurprisingly, as we learn in a later chapter, they turn out to be similar backgrounds. The people in charge of these things who are making the uh, uh, key decisions are uh, sort of arrayed along a similar similar uh, spectrums of identity um this means that they tend to produce kind of similar games and then those games being produced kind of uh set the stage for what it what even a video game is or what we think of when we talk about video games which further influences the video games that are going to be produced and also the people who are going to be able to produce those things because uh whether or not they do that is going to be dependent on how much their life experiences and their interests line up with uh you know generation one or whatever it's uh it's like a whole system Mm -hmm. out there Mm -hmm. it's time for an ad break the patented range touch in the middle of the show ad break 
Woo! Woo! Okay. Just making sure Cameron's still there. Making sure he hadn't uh, uh, been spirited off to review land. Uh, if you're listening to Game Study Study Buddies, you are listening to a show that is part of the Range Touch Network, uh, where we do all sorts of shows that are not really necessarily about game studies, but very often adjacent to it. Uh, so, for example, uh, we have Homestuck Made This World, which is a show where Cameron and I are reading through the webcomic Homestuck and talking about it, and it is a, a sort of transmedia literary work that internalizes a lot of logic from games culture, uh, but then works it out in a whole bunch of other weird mediated internet-specific ways. Um, so that might be interesting for you. Uh, but we also have uh, Too Much Future, Cameron and I playing through the Fallout games and talking about them. Very soon we will be starting our playthrough of Fallout 4, long awaited. Uh, Cameron and Danny also do Mages and Murder Dads, where they critically play through the games in uh, the Baldur's Gate series and then kind of its uh, design lineage, uh, games that sort of fork off from from uh, that style of isometric RPG in, in various ways. Really cool stuff. Uh, just in, in kind of general, then we also have like just King things where we're reading through the books of Stephen King and publication order and talking about them. That's great. Uh, and then there's also a secret monthly podcast that is only available uh, to subscribers of our Patreon where Cameron and Danny talk about, I don't know, Cameron and Danny things, range touch things. Whatever's on their minds, uh, but you can find. Talk about it. unmatched a lot. The board game unmatched. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> which I don't play. <laughs> I love how even like the there was the the episode of that that I came on for, and Danny just talked about unmatched to me for like twenty five minutes. Yep. Great times. Um, Good times. <laughs> so all of those things uh, exist, and I already mentioned it. We have a Patreon uh, where you can support our work. That is patreon.com slash ranged touch. Uh, just a little bit a month uh, supports us, helps us keep going, lets us justify the time that we set aside, and... Uh, Depending on the tier at which you support us, uh, you can get various types of bonus content. For this show in particular, uh, at the $3 tier, uh, you can get notes to all of these Game Study Study Buddies episodes uh, that you could also listen to just for free. But if you want to look at uh, what Cameron and I write down in preparation for talking about these books, we make those notes freely available or not freely available, right? Like it's Patreon available. Um, but uh -huh. like you the just, opposite, you yeah. actually pay for it. Yes, so you actually truly... pay for it. But like then you have the whole thing. You've got all these PDFs uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, and you get to see all the stuff we don't say on the show. Uh, so that's really cool. And then we're the, uh, they're free, free, free as in conceptual, not free as in beer. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, then we have, uh, you know, other types of bonus content, uh, just King Things bonus episodes, Homestuck Meet This World bonus episodes and uh, things like that. Um the other things that you can do to help us then, uh, well, we have a bookshop link uh, in the description of this episode, and it's also on the website, rangetouch.com, which you can go to to check out all of these shows if you want them in kind of a centralized place, just by the way. Um, and any of the show, any of the books that we talk about here on Game Studies Study Buddies, if you're interested in those, uh, they will be listed uh, through our bookshop profile and you can purchase them there and support an independent bookseller. Uh, so that's really cool. Am I yeah, if you hate Amazon mm -hmm. and you want to use Bookshop and and uh, support a more local uh, institution to you, mm -hmm. that's how you do it. And we we put our books up there, and uh, so all the books that we've read recently are up there, and then we've got some recommendations and stuff like that, too, that we have made. Mm -hmm. So check that out. Uh, other things you can do to help us then? 
is tell people about the show, particularly if you think they're going to find it uh, useful, interesting, or helpful. Uh, people who want to know about game studies don't know what's going on in this wide and wacky field of ours. Uh, you can point them here to find out something about that. And one of the ways you can point strangers to that is by leaving us reviews on your podcast platform of choice. And if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, uh, that is, is the requirement for this also that it has to be funny for the other shows it's often that it has to be funny but i don't know about this one this is funny this is from the real laszlo kresnahorka okay grad school in your ears it's more likely than blah 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 blah, blah. i went to graduate school in quote, quote quotation marks and yet learned nothing about marxism or ska play your cards right and michael slash cameron will teach you everything you need to know about both <laughs> I don't know that's true. I don't think if you listen to the show, you know everything you need to know about Marxism or ska, but you know, you'll know a little bit. Right. You'll know which book uh, you should read to get started there. Yeah. Uh, this is also a very good one, too. And there, there have been some great ones recently. Hopefully, I can I can read them uh, in, in a future show. Uh, five stars, of course. This is by Ikfaznutbu. All that in an incredible theme song. The guy who sells fancy homemade vinegars at my local farmer's market was delighted by my Jacques Rancière shirt, which I own <laughs> thanks to this podcast. <laughs> Listen to Game Study Study Buddies. Delight your local vinegar purveyor. That's good. Yeah. That's the kind of real... That, you know what? As Stuart Hall said, you got to use theory to break into experience. And that that's exactly what that Jacques Rancière shirt was for. If you want to have your own Jacques Rancière shirt, you can go down to the description below this episode, wherever you're listening to it. You can click our little link to take you to our t-shirt store where you can buy some t-shirts from us. Wahoo! There's, like, there's some good stuff. We're going to have, we're going to, or I think we're trying to do a shirt a month from here on out. We're going to try to at least, and we'll go from there. Uh, but thanks so much to everyone who's written a review. Hopefully I can read some other ones uh, too coming up because there's some funny ones. All right. Well, we'll just have to hope that there are more ad breaks in future episodes. Who could know? Who could know? Leave us a five-star review, by the way. <laughs> yes, that was that was the point, the, the thing that wasn't said. If you leave us a five-star review, uh, then there's a chance that Cameron will read it on air. So thanks so much for listening. Uh, and otherwise, back to the show. Speaking of whole system, you want to talk about chapter two, play technology and culture? I mean, this is a, a we can... Words of death for this show since we just like got uh, uh, mired in chapter one. Chapter two uh, is also really interesting because uh, this is where Dovey and Kennedy say that uh, one of the ways around or like one of the ways that we can get at video games is to go back to theory of play, right? Like the uh, the the idea of play was not uh, an object of academic attention solely like post 1989 or something, right? We didn't need Super Mario for for that to happen. There have been I did. Oh, okay. Well, you did. Uh, <laughs> but there are older theorists of play. We've read them for this show, Kalwa and Huizinga. Uh, and they point at Dovey and Kennedy point at Kalwa and Huizinga as extremely important for kind of uh you know, the history of play in, in philosophy and sort of as a an object of theory. Um, but they also are pretty frank in saying that these guys were uh, uh, cultural chauvinists, right? They had uh, limitations on their thinking uh, based on certain assumptions that they had made about, like, what civilization was and society and, like, uh, progress. Um, and this means that even though they're super important, when you pull them into game studies... 
you have to be careful about applying those ideas. Uh, and they just kind of totally eviscerate the idea of the magic circle here, which is cool, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they they're the alternative, right? They 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 don't really get in. I mean, they talk about how influential the idea of the magic circle has been, um, but they critique it in all the ways that we have critiqued it on the show. You can go back and listen to uh, the Hazinga episode for this and I don't know any other episode where it may have come up. But basically, uh, the magic circle kind of in uh, the the way that it is used in game studies, like hermetically seals the game space away from the cultural space. Uh, it's this idea that everything is sort of like removed, right? The the magic circle becomes a place where the things outside the game don't matter. And it's like everyone gets leveled, right? It becomes this kind of like universal tabula rasa for everyone who's involved with the game. Um, and they just say, you know, this doesn't happen. Like the world outside the game still exists and to some degree determines what is going on in the game space. Uh, and their alternative to this, uh, you know, be still my beating heart. Uh, is performance theory. They turn to Victor Turner's ideas on ritualized play spaces, in particular his idea of liminoid spaces, uh, as um, not places where, like, everything gets wiped clean, right? The, the, the magic circle is utopian in this way that they're trying to uh, criticize or sort of get around by using Turner, who says that when you go to the theater, it's not like... Uh, Everything in the theater erases what's going on outside. The theater just happens to be a space where everyone agrees that we are going to pretend that certain things are different now, right? Or like mm -hmm. not just the theater, but like performance in general, right? Uh, you know, today we're having a parade in town. And so we are going to, uh, for the space of this day, pretend that this is a road that we don't normally drive on because we got to have all these other things coming down the road. We got to have people set up at their lawn chairs and what have you, right? Like that there are, uh, that there's a capacity to kind of, um, uh, change what a space means uh, collectively and it doesn't like erase everything that happened before or happens outside but it does for Turner become a place where uh, because the the strictures of normal everyday existence have been loosened uh, new stuff can bubble up right uh, things that are maybe subversive of the normal everyday order of things uh, can get a bit more of a foothold than they would otherwise um, and so they talk, so Dovey and Kennedy want to use this, uh, to talk about games in particular, this idea that there, there may be, um, subversive elements within games culture or sort of, uh, their term resistant elements, uh, to the dominant, uh, identities or technicities, which are, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, mostly like heterosexual white men, uh, who all play D and D. That's actually an interesting detail that comes up later. Uh, but the, the liminoid space, right, uh, becomes this way for thinking about, um, how do you locate resistance to the dominant and then how can resistance kind of, uh, uh agglomerate, right, or sort of, um, acculturate, right, come together and, 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 uh, form itself as kind of a distinct block, uh, relative to, to whatever the dominant technicity is. An example mm -hmm. here being play spaces are often gendered. Right. How do you have like play like video game spaces, like very much gendered uh, masculine? Nevertheless, here are all these women who play games. Right. And women who like to play games and who want to, like, make a case for themselves as like uh, gamers. Uh, and so 
there you have it, right? There's there's like this uh, liminoid uh, space in play where uh, these identities both consolidate, but also are put into kind of a, a, a contentious relationship that uh, is open to negotiation. Yeah, you know, this is so, it's cultural studies, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's obvious, I think, but I, I want to I say it very directly, right? It's like, we know schematically what happens, right? Like, that, that uh, game culture is racialized, uh, it's, it's gendered in particular kinds of ways, it has all these exclusionary mechanisms, uh, right? And, and we've covered many, many books who've spoken direct, that have spoken directly to those things, right? But the, the cultural studies maneuver is to be like, and yet all these people who are forcibly excluded from the thing, they continue to play, right? Like mm-hmm. they're there. So what do you do, right? And so, uh, you know, you have uh, kind of the Christopher Patterson method, I think, of, of engaging with that in open world empire. People can check out that episode if they, they want to learn more about that. But which is that, um, you know, uh, people will, will live with the tools they have and they will play and they will still enjoy it. Uh, and they will be able to interact with those things in ways that are unpredictable, mm-hmm. you know, to uh, the, whatever the monoculture or the hegemonic culture in, in game studies or in uh, cultural studies terms would say. Um, it, it is fascinating, you know, ever since we did our episode on Hazinga, um, occasionally I get in arguments about Hazinga, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, I'm just over it, right? Like, I just don't, I, I think Hazinga is like the, the tools that are there are insufficient. And so, like, I would rather do anything else. Uh, and so I get drawn into these like arguments and probably I start these arguments too, uh, but because I can't help myself. And, uh, you know, what's so fascinating to me is that, you know, we talked about in that episode that there's like a page and a half on the magic circle, mm-hmm. you know, and all of the development of the magic circle really depends on how you read those couple pages and how you contextualize them within the larger Hazinga corpus. And then how you can, cont- you, uh, contextualize that corpus within your normative understanding of games and if those things don't line up for you then the the magic circles may be insufficient right Mm -hmm. or it doesn't speak to reality uh and that's my criticism of that and so anytime that we have this kind of conversation or end up having this discussion whether it's in person or on discord or on uh twitter or whatever right uh it always ends up with the person, or often, sometimes it ends up with me just uh, not being uh, up to the task of, like, critiquing Hozinga in that moment. Sometimes it ends up with the person uh, defining the magic circle in such a way that it basically is the liminoid here, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the magic circle is so warped by what they need it to do to be capacious enough to, uh, to actually speak to reality, right? Mm-hmm. That it's so far off model from what Hazinga gives us, right? That it's the liminoid. And reading this book, I was like, "Well, you got the liminoid. Mm-hmm. Just, just use the liminoid." Like, why are are we so uh, hung up on this? You know, uh, this dude from the thirties. They're they're just new words. You don't have to go back to the original source text. You don't have to go back to this uh, archaicism of description of the world. Not like there's there's so much writing about the shape of reality that takes place between like 1880 and 1950 that people look at today as patently ridiculous, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's just not like animal magnetism as fascinating as I find it. It's insufficient to speak into a reality of the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. And I think Husink is a fascinating thinker, right? With a lot of problems, but I think he's fascinating, but I don't think the magic circle is up to the scrutiny that or you know the the to speak to reality, I just think it's insufficient. 
But you got the Lemonoid over here. Just talk about the Lemonoid, y'all. Mm-hmm. It, the Lemonoid already does all the stuff you want the Magic Circle to do. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're going to have to say the word Lemonoid. Yeah. <laughs> which is so terrible. It's such a terrible word. Uh, and Magic Circle's cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would almost be okay if people said, I'm using the word Magic Circle. By Magic Circle, I mean Lemonoid. <laughs> I mean Victor I just Turner's like the idea of the Lemonoid. <laughs> I just like the idea of the Magic Circle as a term. I would be okay with that, even. Like, just, just redefine Magic Circle. <laughs> I mean, we practically as, already are, right? <laughs> I mean, we are, right? I mean, I guess that is the thing, is that uh, there's a lot of protectionism, I think, and, and maybe it's it's earned. You know, I can't, I can't get in the headspace where I'm like, I need to do this ever, right? Mm-hmm. Um but I, I can get where you'd be invested in that and where you would do it. I have a lot of empathy for people who still want to get some some use out of Huzinga. I just don't see it, and I would rather engage the Lemonoid. <laughs> uh, also, welcome to our new show. We've, we've uh, uh, episode 50, it's a good time to sundown uh, Game Study Study Buddies. We are now beginning our show, episode one of Engaging the Lemonoid. Yeah. Uh, our comprehensive show about uh, games and what they do. <laughs> um. The rest of this chapter is kind of a big summary, I would say, of just different models of engaging with games. Like, how how have people approached it? So, we get a little bit on Winnicott. Yeah. Um, Winnicott really was, like, a big... I get the sense. You know, I wasn't there. But around this time of, like, hey, do you know there was this guy who wrote about child play? Um, And I, like, co-taught in graduate school a course on... Game studies, and the person I was co-teaching with, who was like a uh, you know tenure stream faculty member, was like, "We gotta teach Winnicott," and I was like, "I'm not, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you can do that if you want." <laughs> uh, so I read the work, but I, I'm I'm not particularly enthused by Winnicott. Uh, and then we get the summary of Sutton Smith's uh, Seven Rhetorics mm-hmm. uh, here, which we have not covered on the show before, but this is a good summary of them if you're interested in that. But that eats up a lot of the stuff, um, and I think that's probably enough to get us th- to the next chapter. Yeah, yeah, cultures of production. Um, this is where I said that this book starts to get really interesting when you compare it to a lot of other books we've read, uh, because uh, in the previous two chapters, they've worked through the ludology and narratology divide mm-hmm. um, in orbit around this question of, like, what do you do with the new medium of the computer game? Uh, you know, what what are the methods that are apposite to this object? Uh, how does uh, how should a new or sort of theoretical discipline uh, arranged around it, uh, uh, like what methods should be adopted and, and things of that nature? Uh, and their answer to this that is really interesting in this chapter is like to take a step back and say, well, how are these things made? Uh, like what is like these video games are a product of the technology industry and what is useful for talking about the technology industry and what will that tell us about games? Uh, and they look at this, uh, uh, pivotal games Mm -hmm. as a case study in 2003. And so basically that stuff you were talking about production culture at the end of the last chapter, um, here, they're like, all right, you might not believe that all of games are downstream from a cultural hegemonic force that is overwhelmingly white, male, and have a very kind of um, shared history of nerdiness, mm-hmm. you know, of a particular form of nerdiness. You might not believe that because that's kind of where the end of last chapter goes. We have a case study to prove it. 
Buster. Mm-hmm. Take this. Uh, and then so they, they do that. They they talk about uh, the the way that this um, kind of shakes out. I, I don't know. I mean, to me, this is not the proof that they want it to be. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that this, like a case study of Pivotal Games in 2003, speaks to the entirety of the production apparatus of video games. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a much more... Um, uh, I don't know, um, marginal claim. And I don't mean marginal in the sense of bad. I just mean literally small, right? Like the, the, the English video game production, and I mean, England, the English video game production, uh, apparatus culture of, uh, the early two thousands is a margin of a margin, right? Mm -hmm. Like video games are overwhelmingly dominated by American and Japanese products. They, uh, are, consumptive of an entire market they set the advertising standards they set the standards for technological development they set the standards for what game genres and what game uh, mechanics are you know understood to be normal and cool and good um and so it's like a weird thing of like i i like i think that it proves what they want it to prove but ultimately in order to say like this is what game development is from like an anthropological perspective which is what they're trying to do here and or at least an empirical one like you got to go to like electronic arts mm-hmm. right like right yeah i and, and so for me it was like oh this is an interesting kind of thing that definitely proves the point that they're making but i don't think that it demonstrates a um i don't know an industry wide like truth uh, you know capital t truth about the thing yeah um and ultimately it's like i don't need this to to do that right like i appreciate that they're coming with this but i don't need you to like go and interview people uh to prove that that the game industry in the year 2006 is overwhelmingly monocultural Mm -hmm. um like that you could i mean they do do it in other ways right yeah. like every star game developer <laughs> you know at, by at the time that they are writing has a very finite kind of historical existence to them right mm-hmm. like um and whether or not that that is all developers which certainly it is not right they're they're developers and important developers who come from um uh, all kinds of identity positions all kinds of historical positions but the ones that are privileged right in, in, or valorized is probably the better word right mm-hmm. the ones that are held up as emblematic of the industry they're they're overwhelmingly white they're overwhelmingly men you know this is after the 1990s explosion of like uh the superstar game developer um uh, you know uh Romero with the with the sports car and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. right the bad the bad boy of video gaming um, and so like, I, I, I appreciate the maneuver here. I didn't need this maneuver to make the argument feel correct or, or accurate to reality. Yeah. Yeah. The case study is, uh, is pretty, oh, whatever. Like it feels small relative to, uh, what they're trying to argue. Uh, that said, like what I do think is good about this chapter is pointing out that like, you know, why, uh, uh, why do Sony and Microsoft make game consoles? Because they make all sorts of technology accessories and mm-hmm. uh, quite explicitly in internally, the logic is if we can get an Xbox or a PlayStation into someone's house, uh, it increases the likelihood that they're going to buy their speakers from us or uh, use it as a, you know, a, a media player in addition to a game system. They're going to hook it up to their TV. Maybe they'll get a TV that's also like manufactured by us, right? It, it's part of this market strategy. Um, 
And so when you want to think about, like, where do video games come from uh, to do kind of this, uh, the move that uh, they accuse kind of ludologists of doing, of just being like, well, the computer, the computer appeared and it revolutionized what play means because it could automate the rules. Um, uh, they, W and Kennedy, want to ask questions of like, well... How did the computer come to exist? Who is making them? Uh, and, like, why are they, like, why is the computer a consumer product uh, to begin with, right? Like, what is uh, sort of the background of that? Um, so I think that's really interesting. And then uh, they point out that, like, in in terms of, like, what types of games are getting made, not only do you have this monoculture of uh, developers with kind of a, a fairly narrow band of backgrounds and identities and experiences. Um, uh, you have these people who are also working uh, in tandem with publishers who are extremely risk averse and therefore will, uh, you know, not take certain types of games. And this is also true for like, you know, wh uh, whoever's producing the the actual hardware on which the game is played. Uh you're not going to get, you know, Grand Theft Auto on your Nintendo system or whatever. Uh, but there are like, uh, n you know, it's not just like we invented computers and now play is infinite. We can make whatever games we want. Like in theory, yeah, sure, we could make whatever games we want. But uh, games are an industry and there are various market forces uh, that are involved in uh, narrowing what types of games are being made and by whom. Mm hmm. Oh, and there's also the other important thing is uh, the mentioning of the permanent upgrade culture, right? The idea of Moore's Law, yeah. that the chips are always going to get smaller, uh, which they say is like, you know, calling it Moore's Law makes it sound like it's a law of nature. Like the the scientists or like the engineers come into to the Foxconn plant one day and it turns out all of the microchips have just shrunk on their own because that's the natural evolution of things. No, right? There are industries that are working to make smaller chips uh, that, uh, you know, one, allow, uh, al they will allow the production of new types of things, but uh, two, uh, also necessitate everyone throwing out the old thing and buying the new thing. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, we're, <laughs> they fi found finer and finer gradations of doing, right? Mm -hmm. Um you know, like the, the, now that console generations go so long, there's like the mid grade, mm -hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. There's already discussions, you know, all these rumors about um, upgraded Series X's and PS5's, which is a fascinating kind of weird thing to already be trying to talk about based on, you know, the PS4 Pro and things like that that came in the last uh, set of consoles. So, um, yeah, things I thought were really interesting here, uh, were, was exactly that that you're talking about. I like their heuristic that they offer on page 46 that they play through that the game of what the game, eco uh, economic system is, mm -hmm. uh, developers, publishers, and technologists, and that they all have different, uh, incentives in the industry, but they all kind of work together to pursue those. I also don't think that this is, uh, sufficient anymore, right? Like, uh, influencers are its own thing uh -huh. now, right? Like, it is just as important, I think, as a publisher would be. Weirdly enough, I mean, publishers have way more money, but in terms of like generating the th the ground that will make people play your game for the next whatever seven or eight years, you know, Destiny is the game you'll be playing for the next ten years, as as the um, launch phrase went, right? Like you need a whole um, standing reserve of labor uh, to promote the thing, and so maybe influencers is not the right word, but there, but there's something to do with like. Uh, 
reception um, modifier people, right? You know, somewhere there. I mean, anyway, it's part of I, that. I, they they've they already said like the the participatory fan culture is knit very closely into this whole thing because uh, it's where it is where a lot of uh, people who are working in game design even now uh, in 2006 they note uh, people are people who go on to become become professional developers often start in mod, uh, modding communities. So there's some like way in which the influencer is uh, 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 an unseen here outgrowth of precisely that. Yeah, and I, I, and that's uninterrupted, right? You know, how many people do we know who got started in some other function related to games who now work in the game industry? Right. You know, proper, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that was making their own stuff on the uh, in independently. Uh, or that was being a writer or a critic, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that that has uh, made its own way in. And there are obviously other mechanisms now, right? Like, you can go to school, <laughs> you know, and, and get a degree. And that doesn't mean you'll actually make it into the games industry, but it, it's a different trajectory for sure. I do think that this uh, claim on 62 is really fascinating, where they're talking, and it's so brief, unfortunately, but they talk about how Pivotal Games just has no idea, like, what the people who are playing their games like who they are yeah yeah or, or what they're doing right it's like all vibes based development uh-huh uh, and they say I, I like the language they say it creates a quote self-contained and self-replicating industry you know that it's just like hey i like uh this type of shooting and i think it feels good so like other people are gonna like this type of shooting and make it feel good right mm -hmm. like no one is making, I mean, some people are making games, but no uh, large scale uh, developers making games like that anymore, right? Right. Like the, the mechanisms for testing and like checking out whether or not this thing will succeed ahead of time are like way bigger right. than they ever were, <laughs> have been before. But I do like that. And that, and you know, that um, as the industry, even though it is not uh, the, the industry makeup as in the people who are there the demographics there do not match the demographics of the people who are playing the games right in terms mm -hmm. of like who who was doing the thing um that's not the case right but it is way more diverse than it was in 2006 mm -hmm. i think that's like an uncontroversial claim to make oh yeah it might not be where it should be you know it, just in terms of like what is the makeup of the world we live in right but it is certainly uh more like like what the world is than it was back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what's fascinating to me is that, that the, the changing demographics of the video game industry really doesn't get away from this problem, right, of the self-contained and self-replicating industry. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 weirdly enough, the game development culture gets to kind of stay the same um, by creating selection mechanisms for who gets to come in and who doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and without getting into too many details, right? I think uh, there there are many, many cases, very public cases at this point, of people who have been uh, who uh, are hired into the game industry uh, and find that there is no place for them there, right? Either for um, racial reasons, for gendered reasons, whatever, right? Like we both know people who have burned out of the industry mm -hmm. precisely for these reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, because the the game industry's hiring practices say that they want to be more capacious. Uh, they want to better reflect the world that we actually live in. They want to make sure that they are uh, diversifying the people who are working on games, right? Which should happen. Uh, and then those people who uh, are not of the backgrounds that we're talking about here, right? Predominantly 
uh, straight, white, upper middle class, um, you know, those kinds of things, they make their way into the industry and the industry is fundamentally weighted against them for like a thousand different reasons, right? And so then they leave Mm -hmm. um, because it's not worth the kind of psychic damage uh and and bodily damage right mm-hmm. that that one has to take to do that so what's fascinating to me is that um that the mechanisms of recruitment can change and the the self-contained self-replicating industrial quality uh can can stick around mm-hmm. uh and not uh and not morph but i you know i i think i would love to read more empirical data on that in particular mm-hmm uh, the, Chapter four, yeah, networks of technicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just a quote from uh, page sixty-three here because it's another kind of uh, good thematic quote for what this book is up to. Uh, popular culture is a crucial site for the contestation of dominant meanings. It offers simultaneously a reflection of the meanings created by those in power and also a heterogeneity of alternative meanings, experiences, and pleasures. Uh, so think here of what we were saying in the previous episode about Hall and Hall talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, contestations of meaning in culture as one of the things that cultural studies is interested in, in documenting and uh, studying and thinking about. Um, We get a little bit here again on Gramsci and hegemony, Uh, but ultimately uh, what I think the meat of this chapter is, is working through uh, the figure of the hacker and the figure of the cyborg. That's like sort of, you know, step one. Uh, The hacker emerges as this figure. um, We've talked about this before, I think particularly uh, in Lisa Nakamura's book, Cybertypes. Um, There's a lot of resonance here uh, on this uh, point about hackers. Uh, They emerge as uh, these like subversive countercultural figures. Uh, you know, like in the, the think here again of neuromancer, but also, uh, they get into the actual history of hacking as like, uh, uh, weirdos at MIT, uh, playing pranks on each other with the computer lab. Um, but then they point out like, Hey, think for a minute though, about who is going to MIT and working in the computer lab in the 1950s and 1960s. So the hacker emerges as a countercultural figure, right? Or has a countercultural like uh, a sheen or mystique or flavor to it um, that also happens to re-encode uh, a lot of the fairly dominant uh, uh, conventional ways of thinking about subjectivity. Uh, so particularly uh, masculine, right? Autonomous or uh, uh, individualist, um, sort of capable of doing things on, on his own is the hacker. Uh, and this is opposed to the cyborg, which is uh, understood as uh, via Donna Haraway as a figure that um, embraces interdependence and kind of a fluidity of identity. Um that's that's a thing that happens here before we get into a series of profiles on uh big name game developers uh a couple of them like i, I the one i noted mostly in in my notes is the one about john carmack where like a psychological assessment basically calls him a robot i think that this is a, an error yeah I, I don't think you should write this way in a book. I just, I have to say that. Yeah. I There is a thing that happens in this chapter where they outline a bunch of game developers who all have very similar backgrounds, right? Uh-huh. So, uh, and it's famous game, game developers, so it's like Lord British, mm-hmm. uh, Romero, Carmack, a couple other people, it doesn't really matter, uh, mm-hmm. Richard Bartle. 
And it's, and it's the people I was just talking about in the last chapter, right? These like kind of superstar developers who are focused in on Will Wright's one of them, right? And it's people who are emblematic of the games industry and they're valorized, right? You mm-hmm. should be like this person if you want to study games. And they, they, they begin from the place of like, hey, isn't it notable that they all come from very similar class and, uh, uh, you know, race, gender backgrounds, right? right? Like all these things are shared, which is notable, right? Like right. it does indicate something about the privileged position within the industry that uh, all of your, uh, all the people that you want to emulate and that you're told are the people who you need to follow in the footsteps of. They all look one kind of way. They all uh, are talked about in very similar ways. Uh, and then they all have very similar backgrounds, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, Lord British, his, uh, his whole thing is, I keep wanting to say Lord English, <laughs> uh, but you know, like his dad was an astronaut. <laughs> right. Right. This, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Aside from the normal things that we're constantly saying, uh, like, you know, that like, oh, they're all straight white men. Like one of the huge right. things that they point out is like, look at how many of these guys had, uh, direct contact with the field of engineering when they were children. And that yeah. implies something huge about class background here. So that's all really good, I think. That's like a really smart thing of saying is like, hey, look at all these people. Look at what's shared among them. That tells you something about hegemonic culture within games, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't say that everyone is like them who succeeds, but it does tell you about a valorized position and what you're supposed to be aiming for. And it's raced and classed and gendered and all these kinds of things, right? Uh, But then they make this additional move that I do think is an error, which is to say that these people basically became machines. Uh, I mean, that's the John Carmack argument that he's like a little robot. Yep, it's uh, I mean, it's strange. I I thought that was weird. I didn't think we needed that. I think it's more important to note that these guys had a particular class background. I also think it's uh, for the summer of classics. Uh, really important to notice that they all played D and D. Basically, also like that's a thing yeah. that seems to come up a lot in their biographies. Uh, there's something that's mentioned here earlier that they make a, a claim that uh, one of the things that is notable about the computer is that it like the computer is a, you know, home uh, a commodity or whatever. Uh, oh, yeah, it's uh, this is in chapter two. This is on page thirty nine. Uh, computers require play to work. Not that you need to play a video game on them, but like a computer to do something requires you to like do something to it to like fiddle around with it. Um, you have to you have to do something with it to make it run. Uh, you have to customize it in some way. And I thought that that was interesting because what we learned about Dungeons and Dragons is that it shipped as kind of this like weird set of protocols that weren't going to cohere into anything unless you made some top level executive decisions about what you wanted that system to do. Um mm-hmm. So there, there, there is something interesting uh, going on there. I think, uh, yeah. Well, because it, it I, how do you feel about this argument, right? Because the argument entirely depends on a implicit psychologization, right? Like the the argument as it proceeds here is like, here are these game developers. Mm-hmm. Here's how they apprehend the world. Uh, they all played D and D, which which kind of encoded them with a particular set of protocols for engaging with the world. And then we talked to these pivotal games developers, and we found out that many of them, especially the programmers, also think about the world in the same way. Then, therefore, the games, or you know, game culture, is the thing that uh, produces this kind of thing in them, this mode of apprehension. 
Yeah, I don't think I would put it that way. I would say that game culture is downstream of this other stuff. Um, I think what's really important, actually, that they just kind of gloss over is uh, they mention a high incidence of like Society for Creative Anachronism and Ren Fairs. And, yeah. and they sort of glance and glancingly talk about um, how one of the things that uh, uh, powers your desire to like go to the Ren Fair or whatever is that you it, it's it's a nostalgia for a quote unquote simpler time where social roles and boundaries were clearer right you go to the ren fair and you have like your part that you play uh now there's a whole lot of ideology going on there about like the past and how we think of it and so on and so forth but like the the thing to i think excavate from that is that uh ren fairs are a place where you can experience nostalgia for a uh lost system Right. A, 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 you can fan it's, it's a fantasized lost system. Right. But this idea that at one point there was a social system that uh, successfully encoded everyone and gave someone like a, a, a place. Right. Something to do. There's something mm -hmm. here about um, where do where does systems thinking come from? Right. And what yeah. are the values that are being encoded with systems thinking that I don't think necessarily like means that game culture is going to uh, reproduce these things. Um, but where for these people who are at the the vanguard of it, right, who are uh, fundamental to what we come to recognize as games culture, where was this systems thinking kind of available to them and how was it coming to them? Um, I would not go so far as Debbie and Kennedy do here where they say that, like, uh, John Carmack uh, has a machinic subjectivity. Right. I, yeah. I mean, they, they be, I, and look, I, I've written about all these things too, right? I, I don't come through the way that they, they talk about it. Right. And I don't psychologize people with it. Right. I do think games are part of a system of, uh, uh, they encourage a particular time kind of subjectivity, right. Mm -hmm. That has to do with system, systematization, with recognition of systems, with pattern recognition. And they ask us to do particular kinds of things that we then normalize. And that that's what we also call genre, right? Like mm -hmm. the development of a set of protocols for engaging with an object in front of you. Uh, I just don't think that that like cashes out in psychology. Right. Right. Like I don't, I don't think that that means like there's something that has, morphed in your brain that does that right i think you were just normalizing a particular set of patterns exactly in the same way that like i don't think that when i worked at wendy's that it like changed my psychology but it did mean that i understood how to do you know physically immediately without question like in two seconds i understood how to cook french fries right and mm -hmm. to operate this little mechanism to do it autonomically right i was just able to do it I don't think that that, you know, I don't know, right? Like the, to me, there's, there is a fine distinction between like pattern and being able to do the thing that you're asked to do and demanded to do under capitalist production. And then the transformation of, of the subject. I think that there is a differentiating set of, of patterns or protocols for those two things. Mm -hmm. um, but right. They get there through the cyborg, right? Right. They, they get there through the figure of the cyborg through Haraway um, and, you know, they call it a new metaphor for subjectivity. Mm. You know, you're right. Like there, there's, <laughs> there's some like fine grained philosophical thing here stuff. You're right. Is, is the cyborg a metaphor? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. You know, I, I think that kind of that entire wave of philosophy was, was exploding the notion of metaphor, right? right. Like it's, it, it, it describes what is happening, right? right it's not right. a metaphor. It's, it's a, uh, signifier right right for what right is happening donna right? haraway well, is is being actually somewhat literal about the cyborg act uh, uh angle there 
Right. Um, and so, I, you know, so so I guess what's fascinating to me here is is the way that this chapter um, ultimately tries to cash itself out in psychology in the in the transformation of the way the human being thinks the world, and that being subjectivity as opposed to subjectivity being the way that one is expected to comport oneself in the world, which mm-hmm. is like the Althusserian objective, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or, or thing. And ultimately, Althusser has relative autonomy, right? Like, you might have to do things in the world, and you might be subjectivated in a, in a certain way, and yet you might interact and think the world radically differently from the way that you're supposed to interact with it, right? Right, Like, the protocols through which you are asked to be in the world might be different from the way you think the world. And it is the fact that you can think the world differently that enables transformations to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, for being uh, so critical of technological and social determination in the first chapter, they have replicated both of those things in this chapter right? Um, in, in a very strange way. And, and for me, it's like, is it psychology or is it that people who are uh, at at the top of a social hierarchy, right? Meaning that they have the most freedom of anyone. Do they show up at the top of an echelon or a ladder or whatever of a new and emerging creative field uh, because of their psychology? Or do they show up because they had an absolute amount of freedom to make choices that allowed them to uh, fail, Mm -hmm. right? Like if, if if you were born as like a poor logger in the middle of Alberta, it's going to be pretty difficult to like, you know, become president of EA or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or become Lord British. Um, because the, the amount of freedom that you have uh, is relatively small. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the ability to take risks that will not destroy your life truly mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a fundamental way is gone. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is, is it psychology or is it political economy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm always going to default, I think, to political economy. Um, and I think that the cyborg is produced out of political economy. But I do think that, you know, look, there's not a conversation we would have about 90% of the books we've read. That's true. You know, I, I think that it's at least poking in a question I think is interesting. And ultimately, it all lands in Bordeaux. Uh, yep. Bordeaux, Bordeaux, I don't mm-hmm. I think Bordeaux. No, it lands in, lands in Bordeaux. We're going to France. <laughs> We're going to France. Bordeaux. I had to read a lot of Bordeaux in in, uh, in graduate school, and I would say of the cultural studies ish people, my least favorite by a long shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seems like you can make Bordeaux say literally anything you want to. <laughs> Zing! Take that, the French. Yep, that's uh, uh, like he comes in here on taste cultures, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the page seventy-seven. This isn't a quote. This is my paraphrase. But uh, new media emphasize the importance of symbolic capital uh, atop kind of uh, other things, right? So, uh, in say a modding community. Uh, who becomes well-known as someone who makes good mods. Or if you have a website, uh, especially in like this 2006 era, if you're running like a planet whatever uh, fan site, um, who becomes well-known as uh, the fan site that collects like the best uh, skins for Quake or whatever. Uh, uh, You know, the, the point being... In uh, the games industry and even in kind of this participatory fan culture, uh, you see the emergence of these cultures of taste that are because, uh, you know, how it goes, uh, somehow exclusionary, right? Like uh, upholding one kind of uh, aesthetic regime or sort of a way of playing the game at the expense of uh, other ways. And these are all tied into notions of identity and who plays and how. Mm hmm. 
and like Bordeaux gives you the capability to do that. I do think what's pretty interesting here is that this chapter ends with a like this kind of cultural studies kick out, right? Which is like, hey, I just talked about all these dominant hegemonic structures, but did you know that there's other people <laughs> too yep. also? Uh, and so Roberta Williams gets kind of um, called out here or not not called out, <laughs> but like pointed out, right? Yes. Shout it out. Yeah. Shout it out. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then also Lisa Nakamura's cyber types. This is like the, you know, I say this sometimes on the show, but it feels like a peer review comment, uh-huh. right? Where it's like, hey, cyber types is out, y'all. It came out like a decade ago. What, how does this interface with like the argument you're making here? Because cyber types is all about this, right? Yeah. Like, what is the privileged position within society and how does it interact with racial schema in particular? Mm-hmm. And I, I, what, I almost wish they hadn't put it in because it made me immediately think, oh, wait, cybertypes blows up this whole chapter. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you take the argument of cybertypes seriously and you, and you try to put it in conversation with this chapter, this chapter is insufficient for actually speaking to the way that this mechanism works out, which is that because cybertypes is all about the different cultural ways that um, kind of hierarchization and uh, hegemonic forces are kind of everywhere all at one time. And there's no, you you can't read a chain email without encountering them. Right. 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 Uh, You know, it's not just that there's like this hierarchical structure of like John Carmack at the top and everybody else below and everyone's trying to, to imitate him. Right. It's that John Carmack is showing up everywhere in any place that you can look in games culture and you actually need a, like a big tool set to argue about it everywhere. And I guess that's kind of what the book is trying to give, but that's not the argument made about cyber types. What, what happens here is cyber types is like, Hey, do you know there was this book anyway, next chapter. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I thought, I thought it was a little bit weird. This was the chapter that I had like the hardest conceptual time with mm-hmm. um, in terms of like, I just, I think the book takes a swerve off into a direction that I just, I couldn't be on board with, uh, but probably it's because I also care about these issues and I just come to different conclusions. I also come to conclusions 15 years later. So, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> maybe they don't think this way either now, too. Yeah. Who knows? Chapter five, computer game as media text. Yep. Yep. I th- This is a real, to me, it, it, it's a real... Um, state of the field summary, yes. right? So, like, you, you get some, like, real... Um, Classic game studies arguments, and so it's helpful for that. I think that if you were to ask me which is the most teachable chapter out of this book, if you were just to choose one, it'd probably be this chapter because it sets out some, like, big arguments that have never really gone away. You know, they've been resolved in different ways, but they still are around, and a lot of students have these questions, right? So, like, it opens with, like, hey, did you know Super Mario Brothers and the game Myst are still both video games? But they're very different. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the toolbox you can use to address them? Okay, people still care about that a lot. Um, And then we get basically ludology versus narratology, although in a slightly different phrased way. But we get Escalinen versus Murray. Mm -hmm. Uh, And ultimately, they kind of come down on the Escalinen side, which is, um, you know, I'm I'm on record about not finding basically any of Escalinen's work from this time um, tasteful. You Mm -hmm. know, I I think the way that it was written was, was really aggressive and... Often, sometimes just said, hey, other people are, are they don't understand this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these people are writing whole books about it. And look, you can have disagreements or whatever, uh, but ultimately, like, I, I don't know. There was a tonal difference there, especially in academic writing that I have always found very odd. I, t- I tend not to engage with it. But um, 
there's a series of elisions that happen in in game analysis, right? Like people love to focus in on the narrative only, or they love to focus in on the mechanics or whatever. And then there's all these other things that are happening at one time. So what's up with that? How do you actually apprehend what what happens when a human being plays a game? Um, and then kind of goes into questions of representation mm-hmm. um, after that. But that's kind of what the whole chapter is. Yeah. It's like walking through the biggest questions, which is kind of odd to happen in chapter five, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it just kind of goes through uh, little bits of like, this is where, for instance, we get the Laura Croft read through, right? Here are a couple yeah. of people reading Laura Croft. Um, in any given case, uh, is the player... Uh, identifying with Laura Croft as the avatar. Uh, you know, how was Laura Croft designed? Like, you know, male gaze and all that stuff. Like, that's kind of there as well. But then, um, do we identify with Laura Croft? Is she there to be ogled? Or is she there to be controlled? And we understand that she is also being ogled by someone else, right? Uh, like, mm-hmm. how, how do all of these kinds of things play out? Um an interesting line that shows up here is that, uh, this is on page 98, uh, character becomes capability, right? There's this kind of argument made that, uh, character as, as a literary thing is less important in video games because, uh, it becomes about like, what can this character do in the game world? And there's an example given of a boy who plays, um, uh, princess peach in super Mario brothers two, because she has like the hover jump. Right. And so, uh, like this little boy plays this uh, female character, but doesn't appear to have any sort of qualms about it or experience any shame because the character is just uh, the capability. And I would quibble with that because I think absolutely like there are situations in which that kid would get teased mercilessly, right? If you were playing with with the right group. Um, but mm-hmm. I also think that this is um, just not kind of how character has played out in video games. I think kind of the arc from video games from 2006 to now has sort of done the opposite where uh characters are super important uh like you know who yeah in in one level at least i i people are always on the timeline on twitter talking about eris morn i have no idea what uh eris morn's capabilities are like i i know that she's is she right some sort of space witch are you sure? I guess. I don't I, know. I don't, know. It's I, like a... I don't play World of Warcraft. Okay, so I yeah. Anyway, right? Like, I don't know anything about capabilities here. I don't know if that's a character you play as, uh, but like... Oh, I, I, hold on. Sorry. I got to jump in here because I someone will definitely think that that, that was not a gag. That's a funny gag. I hope you laughed along with the gag, but I know that Eris Morn is from Destiny. Yeah. yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you know, Joel and Ellie, look, The Last of Us 2 Wars, they right, continue right. To, to, to rack the countryside, uh, are about, you know, like the characterization of Ellie. No, the <laughs> cinema has overwhelmed the video game, y'all. Mm-hmm. Like, damn. Uh, and uh, where it hasn't, uh, characters have disappeared, right? So, um, you know, Final Fantasy fourteen, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, characterization is through your own play, but character's still there. It's just an assembled character. Right. Um, I, weirdly enough, the pers- the academic perspective from 2006, I think, and the broad perspective on that, on character, it's wrong in every way it could be, which is fascinating, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, it, the, the industry swerved in ways that were never accounted for by other people, right? Character has not waned entirely. Character is overwhelming. And where traditional character, you know, like novelistic character has waned, uh, another form has emerged that just that is not what Escalinen at all were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the the new form that I think of is like Blurbo from my shows. 
Right. Right. A good old fashioned Blorbo. Mm-hmm. A good old fashioned like chosen one. You right. know what I mean? Like that character is still a character. It's just one that's assembled and and mm-hmm. um, uh, kind of anchored by OC culture. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Like the the personal connection to the character as kind of an idea or a, a template or something. Yeah, it's really interesting here that there's this uh, section, I think, from Ryan, right, that uh, that's like basically characters in video games. And this is like in the early 2000s, right? Characters in video games are basically embarrassing. Yes. That's not exactly what she says, but it's like they have no interiority to them. They have no, um, you know, psychology to them. Uh, they, they're functionally non-existent. And so then, therefore, there's just nowhere for video games to go. You know, video games are about, you know, it's again another weird place where video games become about actions, not about anything else. And there's, and Ryan is essentially saying the reason you need to break in game studies to actually talk about games qua games is that none of the other textual strategies we have for reading character are sufficient. And like, I don't know, I'm sure that people have read through that essay, but you know, and, and discuss that in time. But what's fascinating about that to me is that. You know, uh, and Ryan, you know, wrote this book on a very famous book on like other worlds, you know, like alternate worlds. Mm -hmm. I I associate her work strongly with science fiction, fantasy, with understanding how those things work. But like what's being cited here, like seems radically unwilling to engage with the fact that different genres have different reading protocols associated with them. Mm -hmm. And because a game doesn't have jane Eyre in it doesn't mean that games can't do jane Eyre. it's that there's a different material set of reading protocols that you're asked to bring to it and ultimately like games do have jane Eyre in them now right like Mm -hmm. uh and they did at the time right you know visual novels existed uh long form depth based narrative work existed i mean there's a lot of interactive fiction from that time period Mm -hmm. that was playing with those things so it's very fascinating to me that that that's the kind of claim being made but like ultimately like you you open up a, a golden age science fiction novel, you're going to find the exact same thing that you're talking about. That's not because those writers couldn't or weren't interested in or whatever uh, writing Jane Eyre into those works. Is that was not part of the the set of reading and writing protocols that were in the the what you know what Delaney would call the paraliterary at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like you also don't find Jane Eyre in pornography, right? right. And that's because it's a paraliterary tradition right. as its own separate set of engagements that it asks you to do. And video games are a part of that. Uh, you know, um, the last most updated form that Delaney got to in adding things to the paraliterary was comic books. But I think that if he cared about games a little bit more into the nineties or he thought about it, video games would be in there for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so anyway, that's just to say that it's like, what gets uh, in, in what seems to in this chapter have been thought of as inadequacy um, or inability. And so then therefore we should just not think about it anymore in terms of games, I think has way less to do with inadequacy or not being able to do it, or we should just shouldn't think about it and just have to do with the fact that there were a set of protocols and genre expectations and medium expectations that uh, people weren't, they didn't pursue the other thing for the most part, right? right? They didn't pursue psychological depth because that was part of a normative model of literary form. You know, she says um, explicitly, right? Like, can you imagine something like in uh, uh, a Karenina happening, right? Yeah. And yeah, I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I can imagine that happening in the game. <laughs> that kind of thing happens all the time. Um, so anyway, interesting to see how things that are taken to be indicative of a medium or really indicative of a political economy of a particular moment, I would say. Right. 
Um, chapter six. We're back to the cyborg. Yeah, bodies and machines, cyborg subjectivity and gameplay. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about uh this chapter because I've already kind of said it. Like cybernetics allows us to see the play. Like rather than saying that uh the game is just something and people make it mean. Uh, and rather than saying that the game is, uh, this kind of technologically determinate thing that molds the player into its, uh, idealized interactor, uh, we can use cybernetics to say that there is in fact a feedback loop going on here, a kind of call and response between user and object, uh, that can go in all sorts of weird ways. Yep. I mean, basically, right, like... Video games are embodied. Mm-hmm. This is on 104. Quote, the challenges, thrills, and threads are experienced and produced through intimate mental, emotional, and physical engagement by the player with the game and with the game technology. Mm-hmm. You touch the game system. Th- this was the chapter that I read when I was working on my master's thesis, which is on very similar stuff. And I thought, ah, I don't know. Cyborg's not for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I-, I mean, because I'd read all the Haraway beforehand and kind of... Uh, come to terms with that not being the perspective I wanted to take on it and not thinking that was sufficient for engaging with what, what I thought games were doing. And so, you know, here, that's just, this is an application chapter, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to check it out, I mean, it's super cool. I, you know, in terms of like walking through what are the ways that the machine and the assumptions of the machine of the game are uh, imprinted on slash in conversation with the person playing the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately is like technological determinism while also trying to dodge being a technological determinist. Yep. Um, the cyborg to me, more and more, the older I get, the more I read and the more context I have of it. And especially given the kind of political turn against Haraway recently, I would say, mm-hmm. particularly by Marxists, is I would say the cyborg is a way of trying to do Marxism without actually engaging with Marxism mm. um, and engaging with the, the, the analysis of Marxism without being tied to it. Um, and uh, I, that's kind of how I felt like it was being deployed here too. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, it, it, now at, at, at the point where I am in my life, I would rather go with Stuart Hall to answer these questions than Donna Haraway. Yeah. If, if you're asking me to go back 30 years in history to determine a model that's sufficient to reality. Chapter 7? I don't know. Yeah, Chapter 7. <laughs> Interventions and Recuperations. Uh, this is just a kind of overview of various... Uh, we already have this kind of distinction, right, between uh, the dominant and the resistant uh, technicity. Um so this chapter looks at uh, where are these moments of resistant technicities, uh, and we just get an overview of a whole lot, like it, a 2006 book to the end, um, a whole lot of uh, things that were happening in online gaming culture, uh, you know, after the beginning of the War on Terror and the U.S. invasion of Iraq, Uh Stuff that we've talked about before, our old friend Anne-Marie Schleiner shows up here and her Velvet Strike uh, uh, like project slash demonstration is is discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things of that nature, right? Going into Quake and, and doing an anti-war protest and, and that sort of thing. Is that your Stephen A. Smith? Uh, Velvet Strikes and things of that nature? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. This, this is a place... The book uh, ultimately... Uh, its final say about like what's up in games is that ultimately you know the prosumer exists. Yeah. Um. You know the the consumer who also produces the that the 
the active fan. You know, there's a lot of the convergence fan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of language from this era about this that people speak back to the system and they can use the mechanisms of the system like modding or like uh, competitive play systems or whatever uh, in order to kind of um, punch back a little bit. Uh, that, that the culture is not top down, but is also bottom up at the same time. Um and you know, I I'm curious. It's it is interesting to me that so much of this mod mod culture stuff, which which I uh, I took a class where we I think we read two full weeks of this in graduate school of just like work from this era about mods and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think I ended up writing a term paper about it. But the what's fascinating to me is like I don't really see a huge amount of that work now. Like, mm-hmm. what does all of this work about machinima or? Uh, skins you know for for quake characters or whatever right or like game mods you know so like mm-hmm. counter-strike shows up here as a thing that's created as a game mod but then ultimately becomes some product like what's up with that right um you know where does that go where like the most popular mods are now like either fixing the game mm-hmm. like make the game work good mm-hmm. <laughs> the mod right mm-hmm. unofficial patch whatever right or wh- what are they called like clean skin mods I don't know. Well, you like make the ladies sexier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I the like I don't know. I I've never heard them called clean skin mods. It's something. Yeah, it's something <laughs> like that. I don't. But yeah, my thought when they because they go through all this stuff about modding and Quake, and I'm just I was just like, man, Fortnite just ate this. I mean, not Fortnite's not the only <laughs> thing that ate this, right? But yeah, uh, yeah, like the industry just like ate the idea of having. Uh, various skins uh similarly there's a bit early not early on um but in just a previous chapter uh this is from 76 technicities are never fixed never completely determined but are contested and negotiated outsider cultures may then become visible when they are susceptible to market commodification by being identified as the next new trend and that's like 100 percent a thing that's happened in games uh culture between 2006 and today yeah right did you know it's it's easier to buy a new dance than it is to make a new dance? <laughs> and really, like all those APIs and things are closed. You can't yeah. mod Fortnite. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they, no, this it, is a, like these are all things that are shut down. And like you say, like most mods today, it seems like are like fix the game because it has a tendency to become unplayable in some way, or like please add my favorite fetish and or pornographic content to this. So, so let me. Here, here's a good example, right? Like, just in a general sense. So here are the most popular all-time on Nexus mods, the most popular all-time Skyrim mods. Sky UI, right? So that's a fix-the-game one. Mm-hmm. Skyrim HD, 2K textures. That's kind of a fix-the-game. Mm-hmm. Uh, new idle animations in Skyrim. Kind of a fix-the-game, or mm-hmm. customize-the-game, right? Uh, new hair. Uh, more texture replacement. Uh, an armor replacement, immersive armors. They're just increasing the variety of armor. Quality world map. A thing called race menu, which is mm. basically like a model customization thing. I see. Like it is for making characters look. I mean, they they they've got like a sexy lady in the thing, so okay. I think we can predict where that goes. Uh, a weather mod, right? So so there's some simulation flora mod. Mm-hmm. Static mesh improvements, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, immersive weapons, better cloaks, realistic ragdolls, enhanced light. So it's like 
customization for more quote unquote immersive experience, right? And it keeps going from there. But here is, so that's all time. Here's popular for 30 days. Daedric Shrines, Cosmic Eyes, which is like sexier eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, right? I don't know. Uh, uh, en <laughs> Enchanted Staves, which are handmade animations that completely overhaul Skyrim's third person enchanted staff play styles. It's rad. Good. Uh, new armor, but then uh, race menu again. A beautiful elf girl for race menu. So it's like a mod inside of race menu. Some character presets that are all sexy ladies. Mm -hmm. uh, more idle animations. Uh, a cool shield. Um, a sexy vampire lady. Uh, an armor mod with a sexy lady wearing it. Uh huh. Better magic minotaurs. Unsexy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, in parentheses, no, they're just just minotaurs. Uh, a better lay down animation with, of course, a sexy lady. Uh -huh. uh, right. So I don't know. Like, I'm not trying to highlight all the sexy ladies in Skyrim modding. I'm just saying that it does seem to me that mods are uh, pretty exclusive in terms of like what they're about these days, uh, which is make the game better in some uh, visual or mechanical way or put sexy ladies in it somehow. Right. And this weirdly enough seems to come out of something that is talked about in this book that we didn't it, it's part of like the the thread on upgrade culture uh where they they say that there's just a drive to photorealism in in mm. graphical production. Uh, and it's a fairly minor part of this book, uh but it's all uh, a part of the thread where uh the 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 thread of uh, infinite improvability, which is precisely what we're seeing now in these mods, whereas the mods that are being talked about here in 2006, uh, and we saw this in, in Schleiner as well, uh, because she was writing about um, basically the same sort of like uh, a little chunk of time, uh, mm. you weren't going to actually be a very sexy uh, uh, Quake player. Right. Like because they were like sort of blocky models like the, the photorealism wasn't there uh, and you get a lot of wackier stuff like, oh, you can now play Quake as Marge Simpson. Right. Or some sort of weird approximation of Marge Simpson. I don't know. Um, so th they it, it was my sense at the time also that the mod community tended to be wackier or like uh, that was the image that you had of it. Cause I do think also the mod community is still wacky. This is why, you know, every however many weeks there's like a new fallout, new Vegas mod that adds like some absurd thing to the game and everyone retweets it on Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. But those are also just kind of like, those are like joke mods, right? Uh, like the the things that are popular, the things that most people are downloading per what you just read are about like improvements, right? The game is a thing that can always be improved, that can always be made better, can always play better, or that can always have like a better graphical fidelity um, or and very often interrelated. Uh, here are some sexy ladies. Yeah. There they are. And in Fortnite, you can make him dance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, how'd you find the book, Michael? Um, like I said, I thought it was really interesting. I think it gives me some good points for talking about the conjunctions of performance theory and game studies that I did not have before. Um, and I think it's probably worth reading, particularly if you want to think about the history of game studies uh, and uh, think about what is different in games culture now uh, than you know, it was uh, uh, 
however many years ago, 15, 16 years ago at this point. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, it would be curious to think about like what, if we started from here rather than somewhere else, mm -hmm. what would happen? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, it is interesting to me that, you know, the other alternate starting point is King and Kurzawinska. Uh, it precisely because they begin from the position of, you know, they were, they, they co-wrote a book on science fiction, science fiction cinema. They did Screen Space, which is a book of cinema studies and game studies back to back. And then there's another book too, um, that they, they wrote on game, uh, Tomb Raiders and Space Invaders or something like that's the name of the title. And mm -hmm. those are all the books that are like, hey, guess what? All these fields have a lot to learn from one another. <laughs> and it's fascinating to me that the, the books that have lived the longest life are, are the ones that are like, no, -uh, no, they don't. And, but, and I do get for like historical reasons why that's the case, right? You need someone out there to be like, hey, this field is its own discrete field and shouldn't be absorbed by someone else. That, that has a very um, internal to academia, a big impact, you know, in terms of like legitimating a new field of study. Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe we can come back around. Maybe, maybe we can come back around to the Dovey and Kennedy, uh, you know, them as like the soft version and maybe even King and Kurzweilinska of like, hey, these things have a lot to learn from one another. Mm -hmm. The Summer of Classics. Speaking of the Summer Classics, Michael, what's the next book in the Summer of Classics? The final book in the waning days of the Summer of Classics. Uh, the next one that we have on, on the table as we move from the summer into the fall is uh, a celebration of everyone's uh, favorite autumnal little creature, The Grasshopper by Bernard Suits. The gra You've not read The Grasshopper before, eh? No, I have not, and I'm really excited to learn as much as I can about grasshoppers. Yeah, it's, it's pretty weird to be reading a book of biology, I will say that, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, I'm a wide I'm a complicated guy. Mm -hmm. I'll read whatever. <laughs> well, we'll be back. That's as much uh, as you have to, like, <laughs> send us into that book? Okay. Yeah, I'm a complicated guy. Okay. No, it's a, it's a, it's a book on the philosophy of games. I, I will say probably of the books that we have read, maybe, mm -hmm. across the whole show, probably the most philosophical, like capital P. Mm. And I think a lot of people find that really exciting because of that. And I think that you and I will find some of it exciting and some of it um, not as exciting. <laughs> uh, I, I have not read the whole book in a very long time. I did read the whole book when I was maybe during my master's program. Mm-hmm. I've read the book before, uh, and uh, I, I, you know, I think part. Of, I think it is a generative book. Let me say that. Mm -hmm. I think that there, there are going to be parts of it that you and I, for our disciplinary reasons, are not going to enjoy very much. Mm -hmm. But I think we will both respect the argument that's being made. Mm -hmm. um, however, I, I have not read this book since I read James Hans, and I think I'm going to have a lot to think about there. I'm excited to read it again. I, I haven't gone back to it in like a, a long time. Oh um, yeah. So mm -hmm. I'm very curious about it. Okay. Yeah. Well, people should check it out. I think I, I will say if you've gotten to the end of this episode and you, and you know, some people I know try to read along with us and some people just wait for the episode for us to tell, tell them one way or the other. You, uh, uh, let me tell you this at the end, you need to have game cultures on your shelf. It's a book you need to be engaging with. Yeah. So let me say that for this episode. And then for next episode, I, I think it's a book that you could probably pick up right now and then read along with us as we go there. The most recent edition is the third edition mm -hmm. 
Uh, it's the Grasshopper Games Life in Utopia. I, m most people who have read this that I've talked to about this book are not academics. I don't think you have to be an academic to read it. Um, I don't think you need that. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's the third edition, which has some, I think, a different introduction, a different preface, maybe, or something like that. But uh, feel free to, to jump on it, I, I, is what I'll say. Don't get scared. <laughs> jump on the grasshopper. Zing. All right, we're done. All right. The Social Guys is predicated on its exclusions. <laughs>